Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. Excited to bring you another episode of Finding Refuge and to share today's interview with you. Today's interview is with Kelly Palmer. I met Kelly years ago, a few years ago during a a conference and workshop. And since that time, we've been comrades and friends. Kelly is a creator, a coach, yogi, community advocate, and writer. She is passionately following the path that at times calls her, pulls her, and propels her forward. She is focused on wholeness and liberation, individually and collectively. This intention looks like a few different things for Kelly. It shows up as teaching yoga, working in community, and holding space for others to connect to their own practices, rituals, and understandings. Kelly is a 200-hour ERYT with Yoga Alliance and a certified continuing education provider with Yoga Alliance. Kelly is also certified as an accessible yoga teacher and trainer. And additionally, Kelly is a founding member of The Sanctuary in the City, a Charlotte-based nonprofit focused on equitable access to healing and educational opportunities to BIPOC through programming grants and scholarships. The work that Kelly is choosing to do means traveling, teaching, coaching in person and virtually, and Kelly also contributes to some amazing teacher trainings, including my 300-hour conferences, and summits. Kelly's based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and lives there with her children, Palmer and Duke. Mothering her children inspires and informs her work. Kelly wants to hold space for her children to have an expansive and liberated experience. This also shows up in Kelly's offerings that she makes to other parents around race, equity, and liberation. So I hope that you enjoy this interview with Kelly and In the show notes, we're going to put a link to the Sanctuary in the City so that you can check out that program and possibly donate to support the work Kelly is doing. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Michelle Cassandra. It's so good to see you. It's great to see you too. I'm grateful for this invitation. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for saying yes to being on this podcast. And we met, we were just talking about this before I started the recording. We met I don't know, 2016, 2017. 16. That's what I keep 2016 at the off the mat into the world, race, trauma, and healing. I always mix it up. I don't even remember the name of it, but yes, we met there and so many things came from that weekend. Still in action. Right. It did. Yes. That came from there because I remember asking you about your book, which I want you to tell people about of mantras. And you were like, you can write a book. You totally just plain as day. You can do it. So I remember that moment. And I was like, oh, she's fire. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that I was very catalyzing four days that we were together. A lot of things have come for me besides your wonderful book. But working with you, uh, that's how I met through someone else. That's how I met Susanna Bakatari. Yeah, a lot of different things. Yes, and so much has shifted since then. I would love for you to share some about what you do in the world, what your work is. 
So the main thing I do is show up joyfully as a Black person, a Black queer person who honors my joy every single day. I don't live in an environment where I need resources to sustain that joy. So I do things like teacher training, mainly around race equity. I also do teacher training around accessibility through accessible yoga. And I work for them as their communications manager. So I do that like social media and their newsletters. I'm a writer, so I have two published books. I'm working on a few other books. My first book is called Manifest, and it's a book of mantras. And then the second book is called Manifest also, but it's a companion workbook to Manifest. And I released those in 2016. They both came out in 2016. And yeah, I have two children that are six and four. So that is a big job too of keeping them safe in the world and trying to raise them in a way that they are accessing a different level of liberation than I know and that they're open to reimagine in ways that I can't even, even in the work I do, because I'm so deeply entrenched in the systems. So yeah, that's what I do. I cook good vegan food. I grow food in my yard and I teach yoga. Forgot that. Mm-hmm. Based yoga. And I'm the founder of a nonprofit called The Sanctuary in the City, which centers the need for access to wellness for Black and Indigenous people of color. That looks like online offerings right now, but we do pop-up healing events. But then we also run a stipend, an emergency stipend fund for Black Indigenous healers. That was a big part of our work this year with the pandemic. And then we also have grants and scholarships. And we really focus on redistributing wellness for our people, but also resources. You do a lot of work in the world. A lot of important. Only Tuesday through Thursday, though. I don't work Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday. Yeah, this is what I want to talk about. So something I've witnessed, and you may have always been this way. I don't know, because when I met you, we were in the container of that space. And then we stayed in contact. And what I've witnessed is you sharing more about joy and liberation. Again, you may have always done that, but sharing that on social media and just in the way you're showing up in the world and prioritizing your joy and liberation. And I I would love for you to share some about if you haven't always been that way, right? Practicing, prioritizing your liberation. How did that come to be? Right. I think that I always felt that whatever systems we were navigating were not allowing me to be in my fullness in different ways. And something you say in your book around like ways that we lean into liberation is like to be in practice. Like we as teachers have to be practicing what we are teaching. And as I dug more deeply into equity for wellness spaces, I have to look at why wellness spaces aren't normally filled with people of color or accessible to Black folks. And part of it, I think, is a narrative that we've accepted that we don't deserve to be well, that we don't deserve to be in joy. And embodying that means that we downplay what is natural, rest, play, fun, love, food, like we downplay that part of our life and lean into what the system tells us makes us valuable, which is working and producing. And so I'm a Capricorn and I'm a Capricorn who's worked for herself for almost her entire adult life. This actually is one of the longest periods I've held a job working for accessible yoga since I was 18 or 19 years old. I've always just did my own thing. And I worked a lot. I worked really hard. I mean, I released both those books with a newborn and a toddler and a whole hair salon because <laughs> I was a hairstylist for 13 years. And so just even the concept of working every day in a salon, taking care of two small children and writing a book, two books, feels exhausting to me now. And I realized that as much as I love those things, I was doing all of them in the way that I was doing them. 
because I didn't really understand how much my joy was tied to my liberation. And I think it's making me teary-eyed that I believed that I couldn't be in joy if I wanted to be valued, that I couldn't center my own joy. And it makes me emotional because I just think about all the years that I didn't experience the level of joy that I have now and how much more expansive my offering to the world could have been during that time, even you know, to my children, to the businesses I've had, to yoga, to writing. And what I know is that when I center my joy, joy pervades every single thing that I do. And so I'm not willing to not consider my joy. It's like not even an option. When folks ask me to do things, I'm like, uh, is it on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or Monday? That's strike number one. Don't mean I won't do it because sometimes I do show up on the weekends, but also like, will it allow me to be the fullest version of myself? Will it allow me to say white supremacy multiple times without having to watch my tone? It brings me joy to say white supremacy too. So I should say that. I like, I like to say that word out loud for white people. But I also think The minute that I said, what brings me joy is most important, not what other people think about me, not the relationships that I have, not the like resources that are available to me, but my ability to cultivate joy in any moment is most important. The minute that I said that, it opened up an expanse of my own existence that feels like liberation. It feels like a glimpse of liberation. And so, you know. I want that all the time. So in every moment, I'm cultivating it for myself in whatever ways I can. That's so beautiful. It is. (laughs) Like if I'm working with you, know that it's because for me, it feels connected to my joy. And if Mm -hmm. I say no, it's because it doesn't connect at all. Like it has to feel very, very valuable because even in being here with you, like I'm talking with you and it's beautiful outside. And to me, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice. I'm not sacrificing being outside to be in here with you and I lived my life for a long time thinking about things as a binary of yes or no, I can do this, but I can't do that. And I live in the place now of I can do this and that I can be in joy and work. I can be taken care of and work less. I invite everybody into that space of like, I feel like the pandemic forced folks to recognize how much of their internal value system is connected to their ability to produce. And the minute that we were forced to stop producing as a coach and just as a human who's in relationship with other humans, I felt a deep desire to remind people like, just chill, just fucking chill. Don't do another fucking thing. Just relax because what else is there for you to do? What else is there for you to do? Why are we scrambling around trying to figure out how to navigate something that we have no idea how it will end because we don't even really have a full understanding of how. And, you know, I I coach folks. I, I didn't say that as one of my jobs, but I coach folks individually and in groups. And every single coaching client, I'm like, just chill, go outside, make love, make food, play, do everything that this crazy effed up system does not make space for. And we'll return to the working and the producing when and if the time comes. But what I hope is that folks are waking up to like, wait a minute. So I can still exist. I can still live without this crazy five-day work week. They want us to work five days a week. (laughs) 
too much. Um, it's only seven days. <laughs> At least half of it should be about your joy, not about earning. Because the reality is, my reality is, you can't work hard enough to not ever have to work in this system. Mm-hmm. So you might as well fucking work less because you'll never work enough to be a billionaire or to never have to worry about working. Even they have to worry about keeping their systems in place so that they can continue to earn. I'm not going to uphold that for myself. And I'm glad that my children are young enough to not remember me working all the time. They would be right there. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't even making the sacrifice of like, oh, my children can't be with me. I was just saying like, oh, my children have to be here with me while I'm working or I have to have access to them and I'm still going to work a lot. And no, I'm not. I'm going to put up a hammock in my yard and I'm going to spend most of the day in it, even parenting from there. It feels better. It's like you just even sharing about your choice of where to work in your house. Like that should be the decision we all make. Like, do I want to come into an office? Do I want to be in the park? You know what I mean? Do I want to have a bra on? Mm -hmm. How liberating it's been to teach without a bra. I've never in my entire adult life been anywhere that I consider my job without a bra on. Now I'm like, does it require a bra? I'm like looking through my entire closet, like probably not the crop tops, but the rest of this, I'm not, uh-uh. I'm teaching yoga without a bra. I'm walking around the neighborhood without a bra, which might not be a big deal to some people, but for me, that's a huge deal, but it's those small things. You know what I'm saying? It is a big deal. I don't have a bra on right now. And I've been walking around my neighborhood without a bra and it feels great. Man, that's who decided we as people with boobs, regardless of your gender, we don't got to strap them things up. We can just let be free. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You can't even breathe. Like joy is being able to take a full breath. We can't breathe I, properly like that. <laughs> I know we can't. And I really, I mean, so much of what you just said resonated. And, and one thing that struck me so deeply is when you spoke about your children and you said, you hope you don't, they don't remember you working as much as you were before. And instead, I think that they remember how you're prioritizing joy now and play and pleasure. And it made me think about my mom and watching her as a single parent work all day long and then come home and take care of us. And she did it. And I I can't imagine what that was like for her and all that she had to sacrifice because of the way she was positioned and in the system and because she had to take care of two kids on her own and wanted us to feel joy, right? And have opportunity and play. totally made me think about her and what that does to the body, the toll that it takes on the body and the spirit when we can't prioritize our joy. Right. And then if you add the extra layer that for a lot of people, when you become a parent or when you partner in a relationship, the narrative that we're sold is that we cannot be our whole selves. We'll have to compromise and sacrifice ourselves. And that's not to say that being in relationship with people, whether you're parenting, even if you're caring for someone, elderly parent, ailing child, ailing partner, whatever, there are things that are going to create a space where you have to move differently. And it doesn't have to mean that you don't exist as yourself anymore, that you don't deserve pleasure or space or a break. And I think particularly for Black feminine identified folks who are from the South, as I am and as you are, we embody this role of caretaking that puts us in a space of feeling like our self-sacrifice is natural, normal, and best. And the moment one of us says, actually, no, that's not what's best. 
you know, we are viewed as selfish. We're viewed as not valuable, as not focused, as not dedicated or committed to whatever that, whatever role it is. And I reject that. I reject it. And I invite other folks to reject that only parts of ourselves can be honored when we're in relationship with people. I'm at the point where if it's a relationship where my whole self can't be present, then I'm not. Yeah. How much do you feel like your spiritual practice has informed prioritizing joy and just where you are right now in your life? I was just having this conversation with my therapist yesterday. I think that the person that I remember being before I practiced yoga did not have the tools to self-regulate. And when I think about what I've experienced since becoming a practitioner and teacher and like letting this be the work that I do, if I had not had this, it would look way different. I would have suffered more in times when I had a choice between suffering or leaning into joy. And that's not to say that there hasn't been pain. Of course, I'm like a person. I've experienced pain. I've lost people. I'm divorcing. Like I've navigated levels of domestic violence that if I didn't have the practice to hold me or to gather me, as Octavia Raheem talks about in her new book, it was just would have been way more messy and I will be suffering in this moment. And for me, at least, the practice offers a place of refuge. It allows the pathway for me to make a choice. There's that pause of the in between your inhale and your exhale, but you know, on both ends. And I think that me knowing that, that like, oh, in each breath cycle, I have pauses to really take in the sensations in my body, the stories in my mind, the interactions around me, and lean into the opportunity to create whatever I want and not create it based on what other people want from me or think of me or systems. That's what the practice does for me. I'm grateful to it because even in having very small children, they don't know me outside of yoga. We were just talking about this the other day that like, I don't spank. And part of that is my own practice of non-harming and feeling very much connected to removing that physical aggression from our relationship. And also, I am not the one. So I have the ability to fly off the handle. I also, though, after years and years of practice, can recognize that uptick of my own heartbeat, that uptick of my of holding my own breath, the tension that comes in my body when I'm really frustrated. And as I shared with them, it puts me in a space that it never even crosses my mind to physically aggress them or run up on them in ways that are sometimes normalized in parenting because I'm with my breath. And my oldest will ask all the time, like, are you breathing? Because you said if you're breathing, you can't yell. You are correct. <laughs> so, yeah, it holds me and gathers me and gets me together and cold checks me sometimes. and also soothes me and provides me a home. I mean, I think about like all the different teachers that I have. I consider you one of my teachers. I think about Jay Miles in Richmond as one of my teachers and Octavia, but also like Dr. Gale and just her work around race-based stress and trauma and restorative yoga. And, you know, we've mentioned that weekend we were together. And so we were together in like June 
a few weeks later, I went to the Black Yoga Teachers Alliance Conference at Kupalu and I met Dr. Gail and went through a two-hour offering of that race-based stress and trauma. And Dr. Gail healed me from the time that we were together. And I didn't even realize I needed healing. And I don't fault the folks who facilitated or carried that session out. And they weren't prepared for the bigness of the work that was happening in that space and didn't necessarily have stuff in place to support Black folks that were in that space. Mm -hmm. And so I left feeling very energized to do my work and expand my work in race, equity, and wellness. And without knowing it, I left there deeply wounded from that time and questioning the validity of yoga and wellness spaces for me as a person of color. But it wasn't until Dr. Gail took me into restorative posture that I recognized it and was able to release it. So I'm saying all that to say, I just think about all the dynamic teachers that I've had the privilege of sitting under Keisha Battles and Juvena and Amber Carnes and you and John Along, Maya Brewer, like all of these people who have given me so much clarity about what the practice can mean for me outside of our asana. I can't imagine not sharing that with other folks. And do you have a daily practice or ritual you engage or is it different every day based on how you feel and what you need? Well, the cap in me wants to do everything the same every single day. The realist in me is like, no, things can't be so dogmatic because then I'll create a story about failing. So usually, um, and you know, it's kind of different now because I don't leave home and I don't know when I'll leave home again. I'm like, why should I? But to answer your question, I normally rise around 7 or 7.30 in the morning. I actually usually lay around for another 30 minutes to an hour, meditate, write, but only for a short time, like three to five minutes. And then I have to arrange meals for the people. (laughs) And my partner is here since April from New York, but she also practices yoga. So we try to do some sort of movement practice in the morning if we have time. Today, we did an incredibly exhausting workout that I already feel very deeply in my body. But also, I usually sit at my own altar space at some point during the day. I try to do it first thing in the morning, not to ask for anything, but just to thank my ancestors for everything they've already done for me and just to clear my own head. So I like to burn things. I'm an avid list maker that I then burn of things that I need to release or let go. And there's a lot of power for me in what fire can burn away and also create. So yeah, those are some of my daily practices. Making sure I drink enough water to me is a wellness practice. Also just finding time to sit and listen to somebody else that I care about, whether my partner or my children and also be heard. And I go to therapy every week and I have been for two and a half years. That's why I'm talking to you here in my home and not in some other. Yeah. Thank you for sometimes when we're yoga teachers, we think that we don't need that type of support because we have a practice and Mm -hmm. that's an incorrect assumption. It's harmful for us to think that way. We also need support. Right. And to resource ourselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. And expand our idea of what that actually means um, in addition to the practice of of yoga and the path of yoga. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you can share some about Peace-Filled Mama because I remember being at a conference where you were talking about how that came to be. And it, it was really powerful to listen to you share about your story. And I don't know if you, you mind sharing it here, but just what it means, Peace-Filled Mama, and how it emerged from you. I think the best place to start is that I'm a writer. I realize that I'm accepting that I have been a writer since I was a small child. 
My mom just actually gave me a folder of a bunch of things that I wrote. And I'm like, oh, Kelly, including letters. I had some letters in there where I had gone off of my parents for unnecessary pressure around grades. But I started a blog maybe in 2008-ish. I like to travel. So the blog was just about like traveling or whatever. And during that time period, I decided to get married. I decided to have a child and um, was told I couldn't have a child, went through that process, went into yoga teacher training, had a baby one week before yoga teacher training and realized how inaccessible the practice is to you when you become a parent for different reasons. But mine was mainly around like time. I didn't have my first child till I was 32 years old. And so I was used to like, I've been a grown up for a while. And I'm used to moving on my own steam. And now I have this other person who requires care and exclusively breastfeeding. Like it was just a lot. And what I also recognized was the power of my practice in that role. My oldest child was in the NICU. And even though they're well thriving person, you know, in the first few days of their lives, which you've experienced yourself when you talk about, they were on a ventilator and hooked to all these machines and I couldn't pick them up and I couldn't nurse them. And like, it was just like all of these things. And I really had to lean into my own meditation practice, which I'd had for years, even before I started practicing the physical asana through a teacher here in Charlotte named John Love, who's amazing. And I tried to find like spaces that were like writing about where could I read about like more ways that this practice is a part of this new role and responsibility. And I could not find it. Or if I did find it, it was written by folks that I didn't identify with for various reasons. And so there's also this layer of Black parenting in America where we pretend that we can protect our children and raise them to be whatever they want to be while still navigating a system that says that they can only be certain things. And whether folks want to admit it or not, that takes an emotional toll because we're expected to cultivate their joy and teach them about their liberation and hold space for them to be full human beings and also break them and prepare them that the rest of the world doesn't see them that way. And to me, Peaceful Mama really came from a place of me wanting to share that voice, but I didn't know the name. And so the story I told you, which is, I was in Target. There was another mom in there, Black mother also. And every time I passed them in the aisles of Target, their baby was crying. And after like the third time, they kept apologizing. And after like the third time, jokingly, I said like, are you pinching the baby? Because you keep apologizing to me like you're making the baby cry. And this is not my private Target. Like other people are making noises. We're in the baby section. It's not like crazy to hear a baby cry. And also, how can I support you? Because you seem a little frazzled. <laughs> and they just shared that they were trying to hurry up and get some things. This is their first opportunity to like leave the house with this really small baby and by themselves. And they just felt really nervous and their baby needed to nurse, but they didn't know where to go. And, you know, Target has furniture set up. So I was like, just have a seat here on these rockers that they're trying to sell us and nurse your baby. And I'll stand here with you and talk with you. And so we talked for a little while and I just was encouraging that person to really take good care of themselves. And to consider the notion of single point of focus and that while we use it, you know, as a tool towards meditation, it's also a tool in our daily interactions. And it's like when we're talking about parenting or even caring for someone, which I know you've navigated caring for your mom, there is this outside world that's asking us for everything. But in these moments where we feel the most resistance, for me, at least as a parent, it's behooved me to consider what my single point of focus is. And 
So I just was encouraging that person that like you're in Target and you need to finish shopping and you have the right to nurse your baby wherever you want to. So nurse your baby, slow down, breathe, like all of these things. And we didn't even exchange like names or anything. I still don't know that person's name, but I left and was a bike commuter for a while. I still call myself a bike commuter, but I don't be commuting on my bike that much. And I was out riding one day and I had Palmer. They're going by Cleo this week, but I had Cleo in a trailer that I was pulling and a car was like blowing at me and I stopped. And when I looked, it was the person that I had been talking to with the baby and their partner. And the partner rolled the window down and said, oh my God, it's you. They told me that they met you in Target and that you like saved their life. Like you saved their life. Like they were really spiraling and this new baby and everything. And we've been calling you the peace-filled mama. And I was like, oh, that's my blog name. Oh, motherhood and yoga. And so I was born from that place. And for a while, I posted there a lot and had a lot of like really clear things that I still honor and stand behind. And in this space of being liberated with who I am and how I show up in the world, I am kind of in a transient space around that blog because I realized even in that space, I was upholding a version of motherhood that excludes even myself in this moment. And I feel bad about that. Mm. While I while I practice complete and total forgiveness to myself in motherhood in this moment, I feel displaced from what is commonly centered as what a mother should be or how they should live. And that isn't because I am because how I'm showing up is wrong. It's because I live in a system that tells me I can't be queer or be divorced or be bald-headed or be all of these different things that I am. And I'm reimagining what it means to blog about motherhood at this time because motherhood's oppressive as fuck. And I don't wish to uphold that anymore. Like I feel like I held the space for people to be able to see themselves and still I wasn't holding space for all the people who might mother or parent. And that feels important to me. So just reimagining, not really writing there, mainly just teaching online. I have a Patreon that I like was resistant to Patreon for a long time. And I really love Patreon now. So just like concentrating on that and writing books and not working. That's the main thing. Chilling. Mm-hmm. And then working when I feel like it like now. Yeah, I'm curious to know because of what you just named about motherhood and just where you are in your process. It's a transient place. As you're reimagining parenting or or motherhood, whichever resonates for you, or maybe there's another term, right? Or care, I'm not sure, right? I think it's different for different people. What comes up for you around how you want to parent and mother your children and just steward your work? I also think about that too. I think that even without the intention, I upheld the notion that good mothers are married, straight, attractive. And when I say attractive, I mean like uphold a standard of beauty that isn't realistic when you consider the amount of work that goes into taking care of the people. I also accepted that good mothering meant sacrificing ourselves. And although I feel very richly connected to mothers, and I always have been, but didn't really realize it, mothers who mother in their own way, I secretly held judgments about them because they didn't fit the notion of what I was told a mother should be. You know what I mean? Mothers Mm -hmm. who don't seek partnership, mothers who 
take time for themselves, go on vacations alone. Like I didn't grow up seeing my mom do that. We went on every vacation. We went on every work trip she went on. She didn't travel without us. And it's been hard to put a hard stop for the people that I have known for a long time and say like the version of me that you grew to know and I guess love or value isn't real. This is the real version of me. And everyone hasn't been necessarily welcoming because Mm -hmm. that means new boundaries. That means new understandings. It means me advocating for myself in a way that I haven't ever done before in my life. And it also means me saying no when a lot of folks are used to me saying yes. And that includes my children. You know what I'm saying? Like, I said no because I said no. We can talk about the reasons later, but I'm tired right now. <laughs> just no. And just reimagining if motherhood or parenting, I still identify as a mother. If motherhood is something that I want to focus on, I think it's a part of my work. It's like I just told you I just was teaching a three-hour race equity workshop that's part of a larger series today. And parenting came up because in a lot of ways, I'm like, the grownups are trash. Let's focus on how we raise new kids. <laughs> I mean, the grownups got to do a, a lot of unlearning to be able to raise new kids. So it still comes up because I'm always encouraging those of us charged with care for young minds to be in a real expansive space. And I'm practicing when I preach of mm-hmm. being in a very expansive space, recognizing a lot of different people have said, like, these children are not ours. They came through us. And we are either holding space for the fullness of who they are or oppressing them in advance of a system that is going to oppress them. I don't wish to do that to the young minds that live here. And I don't wish to do that to myself anymore. Like one of the things that stuck with me from the time that we were together that Reverend Angel shared at the end, because maybe the last day it got better for me of the four Mm -hmm. days. And you had a lot to do with that. And Reverend Angel said, the solution that we seek does not yet exist. And so I'm fortunate that I've run into Reverend Angel a couple of times, one time randomly at a train station on the <laughs> metro, like out in the middle of nowhere. I was with my partner and kids and she was with her partner and it was like, Reverend Angel. <laughs> um, but I've had a couple of times to sit with her and thank her for that offering, because what it did for me was awaken this notion that. We literally could make it anything that we want to. No Mm -hmm. one else can say so. And so here, at least in my house and in my body, I literally had braids yesterday. And today I sit with you bald because it's where I want it to be. And it's mine. And it's the same with my joy. And it's the same with my liberation. And I recognize the constraints of the systems that we live in. And in this house, in my body, I'm going to be full and whole and come as my whole self where it's safe to do so and create more spaces where it's safe to do so. That feels connected to, although I know the work is a little different, but it's all connected to disruption as a practice. That's the name of the workshops you're offering or trainings because you're disrupting the systems and dismantling your paradigm, right? What you thought was true. And now, you know, many of the things the system has taught us not true and the things we've been taught are harmful too, and what we've internalized. And I love that reminder of we can create what we want. And so I'm wondering if you could share just a little about the disruption as a practice and what that means to you. I think that for me, and I think this resonates with you, I believe in ritual. I believe in doing a thing a certain way, following knowledge that maybe you got from people you're in family with or through just your own research and learning. And 
honoring where those things come from. But a lot of people will say they have a practice. They have a yoga practice. They work out all the time. They do whatever. We do these like practices with our physical body, but then we don't really have a practice around our self-study and self-regulation. So when I first came to that particular name, it's really from the space that because this system, as you taught me a long time ago, is running on its own, regardless of our actions to uphold it. Like it's still going to be a thing. I remember this escalator, like in my mind, I have such a crisp memory of this moving sidewalk that you built. I hope that whatever books come after this, this moving sidewalk makes it into, because it's really a poignant thing that you drove home. But when I think about the fact that this system is operating all the time, and that we each have different access points around disengaging it and divesting it from it, we also have to be in a daily practice of that disruption because we are in a daily practice of being asked to lean into white supremacy, which, you know, it asks us to separate our, from our humanity. And in each moment, everything we read, see, the food we eat, the, the music we listen to, like so much of it is asking us to step away from our humanity that we would have to be actively and intentionally practicing that remembering of who we really are and what it means to be human and what it means to honor people's humanity. And so what frustrates me often in race equity conversations is intellectualizing how race shows up. For me, it's a construct of whiteness around not feeling our feelings and let us just talk about the concepts and give some examples, but never really actually turn and examine ourselves or create any actionable steps. And this workshop is a workshop I've been doing actually for years. I laugh because this year I've had more requests for it than I've had in four years of offering it. I even laughed at some of the studios that I initially mailed, like sent proposals to who I never heard back from are like blowing up my inbox. And that's fine. They can swipe their debit cards. I'm serious. Like you can get the work now. You want it. It's more expensive. It was less. You should have got it the first time. Now it's expensive. But um, I into this place of wanting to hold a space for people to sit in deep introspection around how they engage the system. And then also be in deep introspection about what it means to shift culture, especially within wellness, because to me, wellness is the one place that still has a stranglehold on not allowing, not providing access. And it's all the systems wrapped up in one like space. And also I don't work in under other industries. So I don't know what architects are going through. I just know that. Everyone deserves access to this practice that holds and gathers me. And there are people actively gatekeeping the space, gatekeeping the practices, gatekeeping the knowledge in the name of resources, profits over people. And hopefully, and I feel like this, hopefully the space that I'm cultivating in these workshops gives people, because people want to answer, like they want things to be solved really quickly. Like, tell me how to be anti-racist and I'm going to do these three things and then I'm going to be a better white person. And I'm like, even that thinking tells me no, because it would take a lifetime for you to undo this. And so it's an invitation for people to decide this is part of their life's work, honestly, that this is their practice of being in a mode of questioning, of changing their language patterns, of changing how they view resources, of changing what they value and uphold as right, best, and good, because it's the practice that I'm trying to do for myself every day. And I'm grateful to the people who lean into it. You know, one of the calls is for folks to give up their power and divest from whiteness. And sometimes folks are with me 
all the way to that. <laughs> yeah. All the way to that point. Cause then I'm asking for too much, but I had the pleasure of watching this very interesting program that Oprah put on when we were in the height of protesting and were really like revved up around equity and like handling police brutality. And Reverend Barber was on there talking about the fact that underserved folks, Black folks, queer folks, all the poor folks, we don't ask for enough. We do not ask for enough. And they use the example of integration and how integration didn't actually ask white people to do anything. In many ways, they were enriched and their economy was boosted by allowing Black folks to engage because it wasn't as if Black folks weren't cultivating resources. They were. We have all these Black Wall Streets here in North Carolina. We had Durham. We had Tulsa, Oklahoma. We had Rosewood, Florida. Like all of these places where Black people were like, oh, okay, bet. You don't want us in your thing? Cool. We'll do our own thing over here because we know how to do all the things anyway because we've been doing all the things for y'all. So we'll do all the things for ourselves over here. And these systems actively, not only through violence, because that's the part that I think people don't think about is like integration only meant that we subject Black folks were subjected to more violence. Before that, children went to school with people who look like them and most times were further from their community and were deeply invested in their success as a person. And then you threw them into schools with teachers who do not look like them, do not live near them, have no care to understand them and view them as animals. That's violent to send a child into that type of environment. But we felt like we won something. And so I'm sharing all that to say that I'm deeply in the practice of asking for everything. Folks reach out and they're like, we have money. Would you like money? We need $10,000. Unless this is about $10,000 or more, just send a check. We don't need to have a conversation about it. And some people being rebuffed around that. But for myself, especially from April until like mid-July, I spent every single day filling out grant applications. And if you aren't clear about the gatekeeping of funds, live that life, live the grant space. Being grateful that so many folks realize people need relief because we're out of work and also being in the space of, well, but we're going to make you prove that you Mm -hmm. need it. And that's sad and sickening. Like you have hundreds of thousands, millions, billions of dollars to give away. And you want me to fill out a 22 page application. Yeah. Ask me literally the same 10 questions over and over again. I'm just like, we're going to keep doing this. Like we're all agreeing to keep on doing this. I just want folks to get a daily practice of disrupting, but then I want us black people, queer folks, fat folks, folks in wheelchairs, old people, parents, like all these communities that are underserved by wellness. I want us to say like, no, we're asking for everything. We don't want to pay for yoga and we not. And you're still going to pay the teacher. <laughs> like essentially, I mean, that's what our nonprofit does. Right. All offerings are free for black and indigenous people of color. And we pay our teachers a hundred dollars an hour with goals to increase that. And at first, when we presented that to people, people were like, that's not sustainable. It is because there's literally billions of funds out here waiting to be claimed through grants. And I, right now, am in a particular space. I ain't got nothing else to do. Everything I got planned was canceled. So now I'm going to sit here and ask for this money and put the same answers in all of those questions that mm-hmm. you asked me. Yeah. Fundraising, grant people, all that is such a, you're right, such a gatekeeper and that we have to prove that we need it as if history hasn't proven (laughs) that we actually are positioned in a different way than white folks. Like we don't need any, we don't need to prove it. Right. And getting out of the space of not asking for all of it, ask for all of it. And 
people might say no. And also they might be forced into the yes before they realize it of like integration from my perspective. And I'm not a monolith for black people was one of the most harmful things that we mm-hmm. did. Not us as Black people, because we didn't do it. White folks did it. But it wasn't done from this moral. But people hold it up like that. Like, well, it was a moral win. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. Anybody through anti-racism training, they didn't hire the Black teachers who all lost their jobs when they closed the Black schools. That's right. Great. They didn't think about the amount of time these children had to spend on buses to be bused to these schools. They did not prepare or offer support for them around the violence that awaited them in the hallways, the classrooms, the lunchroom, the bathroom. Like they didn't even track that harm. We don't even have a full account of the harm people suffered through integration. And we do if we would just ask, but we need to be in a practice. Whatever your identity is, we need to be asking for equity in its totality in the most expansive way possible and not like these little baby steps. They did a mural. I'm like, it's beautiful. Still one of us gets killed on top of it. Right. Yeah. They put some black people on the cover of the magazine. Did they pay them well? Did they pay them more? Were they harmed during the shooting of this? Like, these are the things where I think about what Reverend Barber said. Like, make sure you're asking for enough, more than enough, because more than enough exists. But the system says there's not enough. Right. And we have to work outside of this. We have to dream outside of the system. Right. And like, I want to exist in a way that isn't so connected to money and financial resources. And we don't, we don't live in that way. People need a place to live. People need food to eat. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep shouting about redistribution of resources because I learned as a person that made $238 million a day. Yeah. They make $238 million a day. And most of their employees are on welfare. So like, we can ask for more. We can ask for the most. We can ask for hundreds of millions of dollars because this person can make two hundred and thirty-eight dollars a day. <laughs> it's just mind-boggling. And yes, we need to ask for everything. everything. That's the medicine. That's why, like, I even say I bring it back to like when we're talking about finding refuge. We have such a limited view span of what it means to be held, to be seen, to be affirmed, to be loved, to rest, to have fun. It's like, oh, it's the weekend. Let's have fun. I'm like, that is two days too short for fun for me. I need fun seven days a week. I need Mm -hmm. to go to bed knowing that I experienced pleasure. I ate good food. I slept well. And be engaged in the work of making sure other people can. Mm -hmm. Have exactly that same thing. It's hard to do when so many folks are like, well, no, it's about the American dream. I was on something recently, a Zoom. And it was like 40 some people. I knew some people. And the moderator asked all of us, what is our American dream? And I typed, I do not subscribe to an ideal that is based on the oppression of others and always has been and always will be. There is no American dream. Like, what would it mean for you to even realize that your citizenship is oppressive? What would it mean for us to decenter this notion of being an American over being a human? Like, because mm-hmm. we do it. We've decided that if you're not an American, your humanity does not matter as much. If things go the way they might go in November, we might be the ones like, (laughs) 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 what's the immigration policy? Because we're in a space now where the world is tired of our shit. Mm -hmm. The entire world is tired of our shit. And it's the space of, there's a reckoning to occur. I just was watching a documentary that was sharing how when the Nazi Germans 
decided to formulate their system to oppress Jews. They came to America to learn how Jim Crow and slavery happened. And they said, that's too much and arbitrary. Like y'all just arbitrarily decided who wasn't valued and y'all lost a great segment of workforce just in that. And also like y'all doing way too much. We're just going to do a few of those things. But we were the model for Nazi Germany. It's like, is that okay with you as an American to know that? That the system of oppression here is a model for the rest of the world if they choose to be oppressed. To me, it speaks to the power for us to shift culture. I mean, you name so many ways we can do that, which are connected to disruption as a practice. And what you said is so important about, you know, every day asking ourselves, what is our practice, right? How are we going to disrupt the system? Whether that be dreaming up some other way of being or intervening with the system and saying no more, or asking for everything, all the things that you named. Yeah. I think that it's work that people are afraid to do because we're taught not to feel our feelings. So when we feel discomfort, we try to find a solution to that, something to take us away from those particular feelings. And part of my own work is inviting people to be in those places. You know what I'm saying? So I want to, in the spirit of asking for everything and wanting people to connect with you, I would love for you to share how folks can connect with you and follow your work and support you. I appreciate that. So I have a website. It's peacefilledmama.com. That's my Instagram handle also and my name on Patreon. And so you can follow me on Instagram. I will say that I don't post on Instagram as much as I used to, maybe once a week at this point, because it impedes my joy looking at the phone, managing the comments, like, ugh, this is too much for me. Maybe I'll feel different later. Patreon though, I'm posting there every week. And it's different things. I really love music. And that's not something that I share with folks a lot previously. But I make a playlist there every month for folks to jam to. Um, world music, yoga music, rap music, country music, whatever I'm jamming to. I also normally lead a once a month live offering. So it might be yoga and movement. We do some journaling, breath work. But I also share like a theme, if you will, for the month that I am working on a second mantra book. And I'm sharing some of those mantras and writings over there on that space, as well as like self-study questions. I'm fortunate that I get invited to a lot of podcasts and other speaking things. So I make sure to link everything there for my patrons. But it's just been a rich space to like connect with folks. And those are the two places. I have a Facebook, but that's kind of like just a place to share about what I have work-wise. So Patreon and Instagram would be the best places. You can purchase my book also through my Instagram or my Patreon. And hopefully my next book will be out maybe in six months to eight months. Can't really tell. I'm into collaging right now and very tedious. I don't do like the digital collaging. I'm actually like cutting everything by hand. I have a bunch of different pairs of scissors and razor blades. It's a whole thing. <laughs> so that's one of my daily wellness practices too. Cause I'll just be like, whiteness is too much. Let me go. <laughs> I'm for real. Like all jokes aside, I was watching that same talk that Oprah had. It was like on every channel. So it was like, you had to have your TV off and miss, miss it. It came on for two nights, which I'm sure people did turn off their TVs when it came on. But she also had a writer on there and they were from New York. And I want to say they're like a New York Times columnist or something like that. And they were doing a check-in of all these people on the call. And the person said, in this moment, I wonder what I could have given to the world instead of trying to spend all my time educating white people about something that they're fully aware of. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. I navigated feeling that way for most of June and July of like, I 
could be a world famous collager. Done collage instead of writing all these posts and blog posts to tell y'all about whiteness. Y'all already knew you just were ignoring it. And I am deciding that I can do both. And I will put one collaging over the other. So I don't know that I'll ever sell my collages, but something that I really enjoy. So feel free to send me magazine subscriptions. Feel free to (laughs) mail me magazines and books you don't use. I use all those things for collaging. Yeah. Share my work with other people, but then also like support my nonprofit. We're continually fundraising. It's interesting because in the month of June, we raised over $30,000 in four weeks. Wow. It was twice as much as we'd raised all year. Wow. And in the months of July and August, we've raised just at $1,000 each month because that push, that performative push to show that you support Black folks has kind of like waned for folks. Mm -hmm. So there are folks still giving to us in big ways, but that feels important to me to follow the sanctuary in the city and give money there, but also like buy the books by my Black friends that are amazing, like your book like Diane Bondi's book, Dr. Gale's book, Octavia's book, like buy these books and support these amazing minds who are just like teachers that I feel like are ignored in a lot of ways by mainstream because they don't look the part of what yoga or wellness, maybe they're too black or they're too old or they're too old and too black and too big and too vocal and too focused on their liberation to mince our words. And I just want to see us all really succeeding and thriving within their system so that we can redistribute our resources and help one another. Because that's one of the things that I really appreciate about most of the folks that I've encountered in yoga that I still have relationships with is like, we all have our own things and we all support one another and we all slide each other opportunities and options and ways to put our work in front of different audiences. And To me, that's what it really means to be in community. So most of the folks I consider my community, my yoga community, don't even live within reaching distance. So yeah, my call is for white people and Black people to support these folks. Give up your resources and, you know, Christmas coming. Order all those books and give them to you. (laughs) For gifts, you know what I mean? Order Adrienne Marie Brown's Pleasure Activism. It'll blow your mind. It'll change everything. Order all Reverend Angel's books. Order, you know, Unapologetic by Corinne Carruthers. Skill in Action, like, do that. That is even more important to me than folks following me on Patreon. I only want you there if you really want to jam with me. Right. Thank you. Thank you for all the medicine and wisdom and laughter and joy and for saying yes to this conversation and yes to yourself and joy and liberation and modeling that for us. Thank Thank you. you for modeling it. Yeah. And folks will also have the information to connect with you in the show notes. And I just appreciate who you so much who you are and how you show up in the world and what you teach me and teach so many others. So thank you, Kelly. Thank you. The feeling is so very mutual. I'm glad we got to do this. I haven't physically seen you in a very long time. I know. It's been months. It's been it's, months and months. It's been more than months. A year. I, last time I saw you in person was in St. Louis. Oh, that's been a long time. Where we skipped out on workshops and went to Sangria and ate lunch. That was perfect. So we have to begin soon for Sangria and other things. I want that. I'm calling that in. I want it to happen. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Finding Refuge. If you are enjoying the podcast, 
I would love for you to go on to iTunes and rate and review the podcast as well as to share it with any friends, colleagues, beloveds you feel like would benefit from the interviews and from the wisdom and medicine that has come through the different guests I am spending time with on this podcast. I also want to remind you that you can support my work, the work of skill in action by becoming a patron on Patreon. Um, My title on Patreon is skill in action and I send out Dharma talks, um, rituals, spells, practices, and journaling prompts as I feel like I want to send those out And each time there's a different theme for those. So I invite you to support my work there and know that by supporting my work and through supporting my work, you're supporting many other people and social change in the world. And lastly, I want to remind you to vote. This episode is out two days before the election. And I just want to take a moment to remind you of your civic duty to go and vote. Take care and be well, friends. (laughs) 